Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tonight, I will be reading Cranford by Elizabeth Gaskell. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter One, Our Society. In the first place, Cranford is in possession of the Amazons. All the holders of houses above a certain rent 
are women. If a married couple come to settle in the town, somehow the gentleman disappears. He's either fairly frightened to death of being the only man in the Cranford evening parties, or he's accounted for by being with his regiment, his ship, or closely engaged in business all the week in the great neighboring commercial town of Drumble, distant only 20 miles on a railroad. In short, whatever does become of the gentleman, they're not at Cranford. What could they do if they were there? The surgeon has his round of 30 miles and sleeps at Cranford, but every man cannot be a surgeon. For keeping the trim gardens full of choice flowers without a weed to speck them. For frightening away little boys who look wistfully at the said flowers through the railings. For rushing out the geese that occasionally venture into the gardens if the gates are left open. For deciding all questions of literature and politics without troubling themselves with unnecessary reasons or arguments for obtaining clear and correct knowledge of everybody's affairs in the parish, for keeping their neat maidservants in admirable order, for kindness, somewhat dictatorial, to the poor, and real tender good offices to each other when they are in distress. The ladies of Cranford are quite sufficient. A man, as one of them observed to me once, is so in the way in the house. Although the ladies of Cranford know all each other's proceedings, they are exceedingly indifferent to each other's opinions. Indeed, as each has her own individuality, not to say eccentricity, pretty strongly developed, nothing is so easy as verbal retaliation, but somehow goodwill reigns among them to a considerable degree. The Cranford ladies have only an occasional little quarrel spurted out in a few peppery words and angry jerks of the head, just enough to prevent the even tenor of their lives from becoming too flat. Their dress is very independent of fashion. As they observe, what does it signify how we dress here at Cranford, where everybody knows us? And if they go from home, their reason is equally cogent. What does it signify how we dress here, where nobody knows us? The materials of their clothes are, in general, good and plain, and most of them are nearly as scrupulous as Miss Tyler of cleaning memory. But I will answer for it. The last gigot, the last tight and scanty petticoat in wear in England, was seen in Cranford, and seen without a smile. I can testify to a magnificent family red silk umbrella under which a gentle little spinster, left alone of many brothers and sisters, used to patter to church on rainy days. Have you seen any red silk umbrellas in London? We had a tradition of the first that had ever been seen in Cranford, and the little boys mobbed it and called it a stick in petticoats. It might have been the very red silk one I've described, held by a strong father over a troop of little ones. The poor little lady, the survivor of it all, could scarcely carry it. Then there were rules and regulations for visiting and calls. And they were announced to any young people who might be staying in the town, with all the solemnity with which the old manse laws were read 
once a year on the Tinwold Mount. Our friends have sent to inquire how you are after your journey tonight, my dear. Fifteen miles in a gentleman's carriage. They will give you some rest tomorrow, but the next day, I have no doubt, they will call. So be at liberty after twelve. From twelve to three are our calling hours. Then after they had called, it is the third day. I dare say your mamma has told you, my dear, never to let more than three days elapse between receiving a call and returning it, and also that you are never to stay longer than a quarter of an hour. But am I to look at my watch? How am I to find out when a quarter of an hour is past? You must keep thinking and not allow yourself to forget it in conversation. As everybody had this rule in their minds, whether they received or paid a call, of course, no absorbing subject was ever spoken about. We kept ourselves to short sentences of small talk and were punctual to our time. I imagine that a few of the gentlefolks of Cranford were poor and had some difficulty in making both ends meet, but they were like the Spartans and concealed their smart under a smiling face. We none of us spoke of money because that subject savoured of commerce and trade, and though some might be poor, we were all aristocratic. The Cranfordians had that kindly esprit de corps which made them overlook all deficiencies in success when some among them tried to conceal their poverty. When Mrs. Forrester, for instance, gave a party in her baby house of a dwelling, and the little maiden disturbed the ladies on the sofa by a request that she might get the tea tray out from underneath. Everyone took this novel proceeding as the most natural thing in the world and talked on about household forms and ceremonies as if we all believed that our hostess had a regular servant's hall, second table with a housekeeper and steward, instead of the one little charity school maiden whose short, ruddy arms could never have been strong enough to carry the tray upstairs if she had not been assisted in private by her mistress, who now sat in state, pretending not to know what cakes were sent up, though she knew, and we knew, and she knew that we knew, and we knew that she knew that we knew. She had been busy all the morning, making tea bread and sponge cakes. There were one or two consequences arising from this general but unacknowledged poverty, and this very much acknowledged gentility, which were not amiss, and which might be introduced into many circles of society, to their great improvement. For instance, the inhabitants of Cranford kept early hours and clattered home in their pattens under the guidance of a lantern-bearer about nine o'clock at night, and the whole town was abed and asleep by half-past ten. Moreover, it was considered vulgar, a tremendous word in Cranford, to give anything expensive in the way of eatable or drinkable at the evening entertainments. Wafer, bread and butter, and sponge biscuits were all that the Honourable Mrs. Jameson gave, and she was sister-in-law to the late Earl of Glenmire, although she did practice such elegant economy. Elegant economy. How naturally one falls back into the phraseology of Cranford. Their economy was always elegant, and money-spending always vulgar and ostentatious, a sort of sour grapeism which made us very peaceful and satisfied. I never shall forget the dismay felt when a certain Captain Brown came to live at Cranford, 
and openly spoke about his being poor, not in a whisper to an intimate friend, the doors and windows being previously closed, but in the public street, in a loud military voice, alleging his poverty as a reason for not taking a particular house. The ladies of Cranford were already rather moaning over the invasion of their territories by a man and a gentleman. He was a half-pay captain and had obtained some situation on a neighbouring railroad, which had been vehemently petitioned against by the little town, and if, in addition to his masculine gender and his connection with the obnoxious railroad, he was so brazen as to talk of being poor, why then indeed he must be sent to Coventry. Death was as true and as common as poverty, yet people never spoke about that, loud, out in the streets. It was a word not to be mentioned to heirs polite. We had tacitly agreed to ignore that any with whom we associated, on terms of visiting equality, could ever be prevented by poverty from doing anything that they wished. If we walked to or from a party, it was because the night was so fine, or the air so refreshing not because sedan chairs were expensive. If we wore prints instead of summer silks, it was because we preferred a washing material, and so on, till we blinded ourselves to the vulgar fact that we were, all of us, people of very moderate means. Of course, then, we did not know what to make of a man who could speak of poverty as if it was not a disgrace. Yet somehow Captain Brown made himself respected in Cranford and was called upon in spite of all resolutions to the contrary. I was surprised to hear his opinions quoted as authority at a visit which I paid to Cranford about a year after he had settled in the town. My own friends had been among the bitterest opponents of any proposal to visit the captain and his daughters only twelve months before. And now he was even admitted in the tabooed hours before twelve. True, it was to discover the cause of a smoking chimney before the fire was lighted. But still, Captain Brown walked upstairs, nothing daunted, spoke in a voice too large for the room, and joked quite in the way of a tame man about the house. He'd been blind to all the small slights and omissions of trivial ceremonies with which he had been received. He had been friendly, though the Cranford ladies had been cool. He had answered small sarcastic compliments in good faith, and with his manly frankness had overpowered all the shrinking which met him as a man who was not ashamed to be poor. And at last, his excellent common sense and his facility in devising expedients to overcome domestic dilemmas had gained him an extraordinary place as authority among the Cranford ladies. He himself went on in his course, as unaware of his popularity, as he had been of the reverse. And I am sure he was startled one day when he found his advice so highly esteemed as to make some counsel which he had given in jest to be taken in sober, serious earnest. It was on this subject. An old lady had an Alderney cow, which she looked upon as a daughter. You could not pay the short quarter of an hour call without being told of the wonderful milk or wonderful intelligence of this animal. The whole town knew and kindly regarded Miss Betsy Barker's Alderney. Therefore great was the sympathy and regret when, in an unguarded moment, the poor cow tumbled into a lime pit. 
She moaned so loudly that she was soon heard and rescued. But meanwhile, the poor beast had lost most of her hair and came out looking naked, cold and miserable in a bare skin. Everybody pitied the animal, though a few could not restrain their smiles at her droll appearance. Miss Betsy Barker absolutely cried with sorrow and dismay, and it was said she thought of buying a bath of oil. This remedy perhaps was recommended by some one of the number whose advice she asked, but the proposal, if ever it was made, was knocked on the head by Captain Brown's decided, get her a flannel waistcoat and flannel drawers, ma'am, if you wish to keep her alive. But my advice is to kill the poor creature at once. Miss Betsy Barker dried her eyes and thanked the captain heartily. She set to work, and by and by all the town turned out to see the Alderney meekly going to her pasture, clad in dark grey flannel. I've watched her myself many a time. Do you ever see cows dressed in grey flannel in London? Captain Brown had taken a small house on the outskirts of the town where he lived with his two daughters. He must have been upwards of sixty at the time of the first visit I paid to Cranford, after I left it as a residence. But he had a wiry, well-trained, elastic figure, a stiff military throwback of his head, and a springing step, which made him appear much younger than he was. His eldest daughter looked almost as old as himself, and betrayed the fact that his real was more than his apparent age. Miss Brown must have been forty. She had a sickly, pained, careworn expression on her face and looked as if the gaiety of youth had long faded out of sight. Even when young, she must have been plain and hard-featured. Miss Jessie Brown was ten years younger than her sister and twenty shades prettier. Her face was round and dimpled. Miss Jenkins once said in a passion against Captain Brown, the cause of which I will tell you presently, that she thought it was time for Miss Jessie to leave off her dimples and not always be trying to look like a child. It was true that there was something childlike in her face, and there will be, I think, till she dies, though she should live to a hundred. Her eyes were large blue wandering eyes looking straight at you. Her nose was unformed and snub, and her lips were red and dewy. She wore her hair too in little rows of curls, which heightened this appearance. I do not know whether she was pretty or not, but I liked her face, and so did everybody, and I do not think she could help her dimples. She had something of her father's jauntiness of gait and manner, and any female observer might detect a slight difference in the attire of the two sisters, that of Miss Jessie being about two pounds per annum more expensive than Miss Brown's. Two pounds was a large sum in Captain Brown's annual disbursements. Such was the impression made upon me by the Brown family when I first saw them all together in Cranford Church. The captain I had met before, on the occasion of the smoky chimney, which he had cured by some simple alteration in the flue. In church, he held his double eyeglass to his eyes during the morning hymn, and then lifted up his head erect and sang out loud and joyfully. He made the responses louder than the clerk, an old man with a piping feeble voice who, I think, felt aggrieved at the captain's sonorous bass, and quivered higher and higher in consequence. On coming out of church, the brisk captain paid the most gallant attention to his two daughters. He nodded and smiled to the, his acquaintances, but he shook hands with none, 
until he had helped Miss Brown to unfurl her umbrella and relieved her of her prayer book, and had waited patiently till she, with trembling nervous hands, had taken up her gown to walk through the wet roads. I wonder what the Cranford ladies did with Captain Brown at their parties. We had often rejoiced, in former days, that there was no gentleman to be attended to and to find conversation for at the card parties. We had congratulated ourselves upon the snugness of the evenings and, in our love for gentility and distaste of mankind, we had almost persuaded ourselves that to be a man was to be vulgar. So that when I found my friend and hostess, Miss Jenkins, was going to have a party in my honour, and that Captain and Miss Browns were invited, I wondered much what would be the course of the evening. Card tables with green baize tops were set out by daylight, just as usual. It was the third week in November, so the evenings closed in around four. Candles and clean packs of cards were arranged on each table. The fire was made up. The neat maidservant had received her last directions. And there we stood, dressed in our best, each with a candle lighter in our hands, ready to dart at the candles as soon as the first knock came. Parties in Cranford were solemn festivities, making the ladies feel gravely elated as they sat together in their best dresses. As soon as three had arrived, we sat down to preference, I being the unlucky fourth. The next four comers were put down immediately to another table, and presently the tea trays, which I had seen set out in the storeroom as I passed in the morning, were placed each on the middle of the card table. The china was delicate eggshell, the old-fashioned silver glittered with polishing, but the eatables were of the slightest description. While the trays were yet on the tables, Captain and the Miss Browns came in, and I could see that, somehow or other, the Captain was a favourite with all the ladies present. Ruffled brows were smoothed, sharp voices lowered at his approach. Miss Brown looked ill and depressed almost to gloom. Miss Jessie smiled as usual and seemed nearly as popular as her father. He immediately and quietly assumed the man's place in the room, attended to everyone's wants, lessened the pretty maid's labour by waiting on empty cups and bread and butterless ladies, and yet did it all in so easy and dignified a manner, and so much as if it were a matter of course for the strong to attend to the weak, that he was a true man throughout. He played for threepenny points with as grave an interest as if they were, had been pounds, and yet, in all his attention to strangers, he had an eye on his suffering daughter. For suffering, I was sure she was, though to many she might only appear to be irritable. Miss Jessie could not play cards, but she talked to the sitters out, who before her coming had been rather inclined to be cross. She sang, too, to an old cracked piano, which I think had been a spinet in its youth. Miss Jessie sang Jock of Hazeltine a little out of tune, but we were none of us musical, though Miss Jenkins beat time, out of time, by way of appearing to be so. It was very good of Miss Jenkins to do this, for I had seen that a little before. She had been a good deal annoyed by Miss Jessie Brown's unguarded admission, apropos of Shetland wool, that she had an uncle, her mother's brother, who was a shopkeeper in Edinburgh. Miss Jenkins tried to drown this confession by a terrible cough, for the Honourable Mrs. Jameson was sitting at a card table nearest Miss Jessie, 
And what would she say or think if she found out she was in the same room with the shopkeeper's niece? But Miss Jessie Brown, who had no tact, as we all agreed the next morning, would repeat the information and assure Miss Poole she could easily get her the identical Shetland wool required through my uncle, who has the best assortment of Shetland goods of anyone in Edinburgh. It was to take the taste of this out of our mouths and the sound of this out of our ears that Miss Jenkins proposed music. So I say again, it was very good of her to beat time to the song. When the trees reappeared with biscuits and wine punctually at a quarter to nine, there was conversation, comparing of cards, and talking over tricks. But by and by, Captain Brown sported a bit of literature. Have you seen any numbers of the Pickwick papers? said he. They were then publishing in parts. Capital thing. Now, Miss Jenkins was daughter of a deceased rector of Cranford, and, on the strength of a number of manuscript sermons and a pretty good library of divinity, considered herself literary and looked upon any conversation about books as a challenge to her. So she answered and said, yes, she had seen them, indeed. She might say she had read them. And what do you think of them? exclaimed Captain Brown. Aren't they famously good? So urged, Miss Jenkins could not but speak. I must say, I don't think they are by any means equal to Dr. Johnson. Still, perhaps the author is young. Let him persevere. And who knows what he may become if he will take the great doctor for his model. This was evidently too much for Captain Brown to take placidly, and I saw the words on the tip of his tongue before Miss Jenkins had finished her sentence. It is quite a different sort of thing, my dear madam, he began. I'm quite aware of that, returned she, and I make allowances, Captain Brown. Just allow me to read you a scene out of this month's number, pleaded he. I had it only this morning, and I don't think the company can have read it yet. As you please, said she, settling herself with an air of resignation. He read the account of the soiree which Sam Weller gave at Bath. Some of us laughed heartily. I did not dare, because I was staying in the house. Miss Jenkins sat in patient gravity. When it was ended, she turned to me and said with mild dignity, Fetch me Rasselas, my dear, out of the bookroom. When I had brought it to her, she turned to Captain Brown. Now allow me to read you a scene, and then the present company can judge between your favourite, Mr. Boz, and Dr. Johnson. She read one of the conversations between Rasselas and Imlac in a high-pitched, majestic voice, and when she had ended, she said, I imagine I am now justified in my preference of Dr. Johnson as a writer of fiction. The captain screwed his lips up and drummed on the table, but he did not speak. She thought she would give him a finishing blow or two. I consider it vulgar and below the dignity of literature to publish in numbers. How was the Rambler published, ma'am? asked Captain Brown in a low voice, which I think Miss Jenkins could not have heard. Dr. Johnson's style is a model for young beginners. My father recommended it to me when I began to write letters. I formed my own style upon it. I recommended it to your favourite. I should be very sorry for him to exchange his style for any such pompous writing, said Captain Brown. Miss Jenkins felt this a personal affront 
in a way of which the captain had not dreamed. Epistolary writing she and her friends considered as her forte. Many a copy of many a letter have I seen written and corrected on the slate before she seized the half hour just previous to post time to assure her friends of this or that. And Dr. Johnson was, as she said, her model in these compositions. She drew herself up with dignity and only replied to Captain Brown's last remark by saying, with marked emphasis on every syllable, I prefer Dr. Johnson to Mr. Boz. It is said, I won't vouch for the fact, that Captain Brown was heard to say, sotto voce, damn Dr. Johnson. If he did, he was penitent afterwards, as he showed by going to stand near Miss Jenkins' armchair and in endeavouring to beguile her into conversation on some more pleasing subject. But she was inexorable. The next day, she made the remark I've mentioned about Miss Jessie's dimples. Chapter 2 The Captain It was impossible to live a month at Cranford and not know the daily habits of each resident. And long before my visit was ended, I knew much concerning the whole brown trio. There was nothing new to be discovered respecting their poverty, for they had spoken simply and open about that from the very first. They made no mystery of the necessity for their being economical. All that remained to be discovered was the captain's infinite kindness of heart and the various modes in which, unconsciously to himself, he manifested it. Some little anecdotes were talked about for some time after they occurred. As we did not read much, and as all the ladies were pretty well suited with servants, there was a dearth of subjects for conversation. We therefore discussed the circumstance of the captain taking a poor old woman's dinner out of her hands one very slippery Sunday. He had met her returning from the bakehouse as he came from church and noticed her precarious footing, and with the grave dignity with which he did everything, he relieved her of her burden and stared along the street by her side, carrying her baked mutton and potatoes safely home. This was thought very eccentric, and it was rather expected that he would pay a round of calls on the Monday morning to explain and apologise to the Cranford sense of propriety. But he did no such thing, and then it was decided that he was ashamed and was keeping out of sight. In a kindly pity for him, we began to say, after all, the Sunday morning's occurrence showed great goodness of heart, and it was resolved that he should be comforted on his next appearance amongst us. But lo, he came down upon us, untouched by any sense of shame, speaking loud and bass as ever, his head thrown back, his wig as jaunty and well-curled as usual, and we were obliged to conclude he'd forgotten all about Sunday. Miss Paul and Miss Jessie Brown had set up a kind of intimacy on the strength of the Shetland wood and the new knitting stitches. So it happened that when I went to visit Miss Paul, I saw more of the Browns than I had done while staying with Miss Jenkins, who had never got over what she called Captain Brown's disparaging remarks upon Dr. Johnson as a writer of light and agreeable fiction. I found that Miss Brown was seriously ill of some lingering, incurable complaint the pain occasioned by which gave the uneasy expression to her face that I had taken for a mitigated crossness. Cross too she was at times, when the nervous irritability occasioned by her disease became past endurance. 
as Jessie bore with her at these times even more patiently than she did with the bitter self-braidings by which they were invariably succeeded. Miss Brown used to accuse herself, not merely of hasty and irritable temper, but also of being the cause why her father and sister were obliged to pinch, in order to allow her the small luxuries which were necessaries in her condition. She would so fain have made sacrifices for them, and have lightened their cares, that the original generosity of her disposition added acerbity to her temper. All this was borne by Miss Jessie and her father with more than placidity, with absolute tenderness. I forgave Miss Jessie her singing out of tune and her juvenility of dress when I saw her at home. I came to perceive that Captain Brown's dark Brutus wig and padded coat, alas, too often threadbare, were remnants of the military smartness of his youth, which he now wore unconsciously. He was a man of infinite resources gained in his barrack experience. As he confessed, no one could black his boots to please him except himself. But indeed, he was not above saving the maid's labours in every way, knowing most likely that his daughter's illness made the place a hard one. He endeavoured to make peace with Miss Jenkins soon after the memorable dispute I have named, by a present of a wooden fire shovel, his own making, having heard her say how much the grating of an iron one annoyed her. She received the present with cool gratitude and thanked him formally. When he was gone, she bade me put it away in the lumber room, feeling, probably, that no present from a man who preferred Mr. Boz to Dr. Johnson could be less jarring than an iron fire shovel. Such was the state of things when I left Cranford and went to Drumble. I had, however, several correspondents who kept me au fait to the proceedings of the dear little town. There was Miss Pole, who was becoming as much absorbed in crochet as she had been once in knitting, and the burden of whose letter was something like, But don't you forget the white worsted flints of the old song. For the end of every sentence of news came a fresh direction as some crochet commission which I was to execute for her. Miss Matilda Jenkins, who did not mind being called Miss Matty, when Miss Jenkins was not by, wrote nice, kind, rambling letters, now and then venturing into an opinion of her own, but suddenly pulling herself up and either begging me not to name what she had said, as Deborah thought differently, and she knew, or else putting in a postscript to the effect that, since writing the above, she had been talking the subject over with Deborah, was quite convinced that, etc., Hare probably followed a recantation of every opinion she had given in the letter. Then came Miss Jenkins, Deborah, as she liked Miss Matty to call her. Her father having once said that the Hebrew name ought to be so pronounced. I secretly think she took the Hebrew prophetess for a model in character. And indeed, she was not unlike the stern prophetess in some ways, making allowance, of course, for modern customs and difference in dress. Miss Jenkins wore a cravat and a little bonnet like a jockey cap, and altogether had the appearance of a strong-minded woman, although she would have despised the modern idea of women being equal to men. Equal indeed, she knew they were superior. But to return to her letters, everything in them was stately and grand, like herself. I've been looking them over, dear Miss Jenkins, how I honoured her, and I will give an extract 
more especially because it relates to our friend, Captain Brown. The Honourable Mrs. Jameson has only just quitted me, and in the course of conversation, she communicated to me the intelligence that she had yesterday received a call from her revered husband's quantum friend, Lord Moliverer. You will not easily conjecture what brought this lordship within the precincts of our little town. It was to see Captain Brown, with whom it appears his lordship was acquainted in the plumed wars, and who had the privilege of averting destruction from his lordship's head when some great peril was impending over it off the misnomered Cape of Good Hope. You know our friend the Honourable Mrs. Jameson's deficiency in the spirit of innocent curiosity, and you will therefore not be so much surprised when I tell you she was quite unable to disclose to me the exact nature of the peril in question. I was anxious, I confess, to ascertain in what manner Captain Brown, with his limited establishment, could receive so distinguished a guest, and I discovered that his lordship retired to rest and, let us hope, to refreshing slumbers at the Angel Hotel, but shared the Brunonian meals during the two days that he honoured Cranford with his presence. Mrs. Johnson, our civil butcher's wife, informs me that Miss Jessie purchased a leg of lamb, but besides this, I can hear of no preparation whatever to give a suitable reception to so distinguished a visitor. Perhaps they entertained him with the feast of reason and the flow of soul. And to us, who are acquainted with Captain Brown's sad want of relish for the pure wells of English undefiled, it may be matter for congratulation that he has had the opportunity of improving his taste by holding converse with an elegant and refined member of the British aristocracy. But from some mundane failings, who is altogether free? Miss Pole and Miss Matty wrote to me by the same post. Such a piece of news as Lord Moliverer's visit was not to be lost on the Cranford letter writers. They made the most of it. Miss Matty humbly apologised for writing at the same time as her sister, who was so much more capable than she to describe the honour done to Cranford. But in spite of a little bad spelling, Miss Matty's account gave me the best idea of the commotion occasioned by his lordship's visit after it occurred, for I could not hear of anyone with whom his lordship had held conversation. My next visit to Cranford was in the summer. There had been neither births, deaths, nor marriages since I was there last. Everybody lived in the same house and wore pretty nearly the same well-preserved old-fashioned clothes. The greatest event was that Miss Jenkins had purchased a new carpet for the drawing room. All the busy work Miss Matty and I had in chasing the sunbeams as they fell in an afternoon, right down on this carpet through the blindless window. We spread newspapers over the places and sat down to our book or our work, and lo, in a quarter of an hour the sun had moved and was blazing away on a fresh spot. And down again we went on our knees to alter the position of the newspapers. We were very busy too, one whole morning, before Miss Jenkins gave her party, and following her directions, and in cutting out and stitching together pieces of newspaper so as to form little paths to every chair set for the expected visitors, lest their shoes might dirty or defile the purity of the carpet. Do you make paper paths for every guest to walk upon in London? Captain Brown and Miss Jenkins were not very cordial to each other. The literary dispute, of which I had seen the beginning, was a roar, 
the slightest touch on which made them wince. It was the only difference of opinion they had ever had, but that difference was enough. Miss Jenkins could not refrain from talking at Captain Brown, and though he did not reply, he drummed with his fingers, which action she felt and resented as very disparaging to Dr. Johnson. He was rather ostentatious in his preference of the writings of Mr. Boz, would walk through the streets so absorbed in them that he all but ran against Miss Jenkins, and though his apologies were earnest and sincere, and though he did not, in fact, do more than startle her and himself, she owned to me she had rather he had knocked her down if he had only been reading a higher style of literature. The poor, brave captain, he looked older and more worn, and his clothes were very threadbare. But he seemed as bright and cheerful as ever, unless he was asked about his daughter's health. She suffers a great deal, and she must suffer more. We do what we can to alleviate her pain. God's will be done. He took off his hat at these last words. I found from Miss Matty that everything had been done, in fact. A medical man of high repute in that country neighborhood had been sent for, and every injunction he had given was attended to, regardless of expense. Miss Matty was sure they denied themselves many things in order to make the invalid comfortable, but they never spoke about it. And as for Miss Jessie, I really think she's an angel, said poor Miss Matty, quite overcome. To see her way of bearing with Miss Brown's crossness and the bright face she puts on after she's been sitting up a whole night and scolded above half of it is quite beautiful. Yet she looks as neat and as ready to welcome the captain at breakfast time as if she had been asleep in the queen's bed all night. My dear, you could never laugh at her prim little curls or her pink bows again if you saw her as I have done. I could only feel very penitent and greet Miss Jessie with double respect when I met her next. She looked faded and pinched, and her lips began to quiver, as if she was very weak when we spoke of her sister. But she brightened and sent back the tears that were glittering in her pretty eyes as she said, But to be sure, what a town Cranford is for kindness. I don't suppose anyone has a better dinner than usual cooked, but the best part of all comes in a little covered basin for my sister. The poor people will leave their earliest vegetables at her door for her. They speak short and gruff as if they were ashamed of it, but I am sure it often goes to my heart to see their thoughtfulness. The tears now came back and overflowed, but after a minute or two she began to scold herself and ended by going away the same cheerful Miss Jessie as ever. But why does this Lord Mulleverer not do something for the man who saved his life, said I. Why, you see, Unless Captain Brown has some reason for it, he never speaks about being poor. And he walked along by his lordship looking as happy and cheerful as a prince. As they never called attention to their dinner by apologies, and as Miss Brown was better that day and all seemed bright, I dare say his lordship never knew how much care there was in the background. He did send game in the winter pretty often, but now he's gone abroad. I had often occasion to notice the use that was made of fragments and small opportunities in Cranford. The rose leaves that were gathered ere they fell to make into a potpourri for someone who had no garden. The little bundles of lavender flowers sent to strew the drawers of some town dweller were to burn in the chamber of some invalid. Things that many would despise and actions which it seemed scarcely worth while to perform were all attended to in Cranford. 
Miss Jenkins stuck an apple full of cloves to be heated and smell pleasantly in Miss Brown's room. And as she put in each clove, she uttered a Johnsonian sentence. Indeed, she never could think of the Browns without talking Johnson. And, as they were seldom absent from her thoughts just then, I heard many a rolling, three-piled sentence. Captain Brown called one day to thank Miss Jenkins for many little kindnesses, which I did not know until then that she had rendered. He'd suddenly become like an old man. His deep bass voice had a quivering in it. His eyes looked dim, and the lines on his face were deep. He did not, could not speak cheerfully of his daughter's state, but he talked with manly, pious resignation, and not much. Twice over he said, What Jesse has been to us God only knows. And after the second time, he got up hastily, shook hands all round without speaking, and left the room. Good night.